Tour is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace and it's the perfect app for travel. I was recently traveling overseas for seven weeks in multiple cities. Turo made it so easy to find the type of car that I needed in each city, including various things like a car seat, snow tires, and a lot of space. I live in SF Austin and Sydney, and I use their cars wherever I am and when I'm traveling. I don't have a car in SF and Austin, and we just use Turo. The booking process is so convenient, and the hosts are awesome. Go to Turo.com and download the app today. Sendar is the OG startup accounting firm in Australia, catering for all stages of your business's life. If you're busy running your startup, you don't have time to do your own books and forecast. Instead, fully outsource your finance function, giving you time and resources back to focus on what you do best, which is growing your business. For a free one-hour consultation about your business's growth plans and finance needs, head to sendar.com. That's S-C-E-N-D-A-R.com. Okay, three, two, one. Hey, I'm Cheryl. I'm Maxine. This is First Check, part of Day One, the network dedicated to founders, operators, and investors. If you want to be a better early stage investor, this is the show for you. So TLDR, if you don't want to suck at investing, listen up. (laughs) (laughs) Today we have Craig Blair so excited. He has been investing in like the VC markets since like 2002, which is totally OG. OG. old guy or like original (laughs) original guy original guy in the (laughs) ecosystem but I do think it means that he brings this like incredibly sage voice every single one of my interactions with him I've just been blown away by how thoughtful he is across those eras and like really anchors us in what's important in our ecosystem he's also just like totally an original thinker and I think his ability to like take strategic risks has really come through the ecosystem. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think he does it in all parts of his life, right? Isn't he like a avid e-foiler, ocean Yes, also a very risky activity. <laughs> right, right. He's also put together a really strong fun strategy team. Yeah, I've heard this. I think, actually, I think if we zoom out, his investment decisions, from what I've watched, he's really good at taking these like clever, extremely unusual investment decisions that at the time might seem crazy but really play out both in the way that he has operated Airtree but also like in their investments like Pet Circle I think when he did it was pretty non-consensus but amazing yeah absolutely who would have thought right at the time pet subscription stuff no thanks (laughs) I mean I don't have a pet so I wouldn't know cool well I let's welcome him to our podcast today Welcome, Craig. It's so great to have you on. The first question that we love to ask our guests is, what is the first thing that you've invested in? I would say the first sizable investment I did was effectively the Yahoo of the Czech Republic. Whoa. So I invested a lot of money. I was uh, about to go to business school and I took my entire first year's business school fees and put it into this company that I thought was going to be the next best thing in the Czech Republic. And I think I got about 10 cents in a dot. Did your parents know about this? Well, I was I was my own person there. No, they don't. They didn't. Uh, but I just, I guess I learned a lot from how not to invest from, from that first experience. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, out of interest, what happened to your business school fees? Did you end up going to business school and just like scrimped and saved for the first year or? Yeah. I mean, I, I was unusual. I mean, I don't know what your experience was, Maxie, but many people at business school either were paid for by the company they were working with before or had a loan. I had my own company. It was an engineering company in the Czech Republic, and I sold that for enough money to pay for two years of not working and two years of business school. So I sold a business and plowed it back into my own education. Very cool. I actually just think that that is so 
archetypal of the amazing story that you lived. I feel like every time we have this conversation, I find out some amazing other fact. I didn't know that you had an engineering business in the Czech Republic before all of this. I mean, I know that you had kind of entrepreneurial background, but like that in particular is incredible. Yeah. How did you decide? I mean, maybe just to take us off piece for a moment here. How did you decide engineering in the Czech Republic? Like what was your journey to developing that? I that 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 could take way longer this podcast, but I, I ended up <laughs> taking on a project in the che- in Prague to build a new what was called the Bonton was a company. Bonton was a big technology company, and they were building new music megastores. At those times, music megastores were a big thing. So I was on Ventures Square, which is the main square in Prague. I was building this four-story building. I was twenty-six years old. I, I was an engineer, so I knew the engineering part, but I had to deal with. Hundreds of people on site I had to do with Russian mafia with machine guns outside. I mean, it was like, wow, it was wild. Uh, and that company went bust. So I bought it out, took it over, and ended up with other projects and sort of just happened through a series of like strange events. And I always felt out of my depth and I always felt I didn't know what I was doing. And I feel like I needed to get an education around business, not just engineering. This is why I went off to business school. Yeah, very cool. Wow. I did. I mean, I feel like my observation at least you know i obviously have got to watch from the outside a bunch of the investments you've made kind of heard about a bunch of the businesses you've built including airtree right like as one of the premier investment funds now in australia how do you think about developing theses that you chase do you like develop areas that you invest in i know you guys do this at the fund level at airtree but when you're thinking about like where do I want to invest? How do I want to invest? Are you doing like pre-thinking about these areas and then executing them as opportunities become available? Or are you like on the fly being like, wow, that sounds like a good opportunity. Like, how do you think about thesis development? Yeah, I, I wouldn't have called it a thesis development until maybe last five, 10 years. I think that I usually have, I'm naturally contrarian to a fault sometimes. Like if everyone's going left, I'll go right and vice versa. So that tends to be annoying because it's, I'm always doing the opposite of what all the people are doing. Uh, <laughs> so that's the first thing. Like if everyone in, in Vesh, for example, is going into something right now, I don't want to be there. I want to be somewhere outside that. But then it's like a question, if you're too far outside that, you just never get something. So I'm trying to fight just on the fear of the outside of the norm where it's going to work in the next five, 10 years, not next 20 years, <laughs> but it's not going to be the same thing everyone else is doing. Uh, so that's what I... That's what I did in my first startup, and I was an online travel company in the UK um, in the dot com era. And on, online travel is pretty boring now, but at the time it was, it just felt like the first use case of the internet where you can actually buy a ticket online, book a flight online, all normal stuff now. But it, music was going to happen. I had friends with music, but it was happened, turned out, happened 10 years later. Yeah, e commerce happened, but it turns out, you know, pets took 20 years later. So <laughs> I think I was lucky to find something which was a little bit contrarian, but not too contrarian. And it worked. Does that mean you're not going after AI right now if all the other VCs are? <laughs> God, that's the biggest reach when it comes to all of this hype we get into. <laughs> yeah. I have this thing I say, oh, we're VCs, we're all, we're all contrarian together. <laughs> but yeah. that's a fact. You, you, you can't make an offer if you follow the crowd. So you've got to have to do something different. 100%. Fair enough. And so you, you guys, you know, speaking to the team each year, that you develop different themes each year. Yeah. Really curious to understand, like, how do you do that? Do you sit down as a team? Do you, like, go through what's going on in trends? Like, talk us through some of that theme development that you do. Yeah, I think it happens fairly organically. I mean, our first premise is we do develop theses, but our first belief, philosophy, is that founders will find the best ideas. Like, our, our job is to be scaring the market, understand whether 
where the best and brightest are thinking, you know, and, and, and as you meet people, you can see something's going on in a sector. So, yeah, it's, it's very much a founder-driven thesis. But that said, there's probably a couple of ways we land on the thesis. One is, is something's happening at a horizontal level. AI is a good example. We want to go on the stack and just think deeply about, okay, how's it going to play out? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? That's usually a big piece of work done by somebody in the team. They present it back. We sort of thrash it out and land on a position. Like this is the areas where we think it's interesting. There is could be interesting. Everyone else is going to be there. This is the area is going to go to the comments. And then the other way it could be verticals. Actually, we might find sort of hot spots of activity. Going, something's going on over there. We need to like build a thesis around that. And that could be in like industry verticals. It can be things like ag tech or aged care in the There's a bunch of things like there's something going to happen in there. What's the role of technology software? We have a both vertical and horizontal view of thesis. It's just more of a way of thinking about the sector. And like how much you use those themes to filter out or filter in companies? Uh, we don't. It's more to let us to have a view on when we look seeing companies, we say, you know, in these, we've seen three companies in that space where our view is that space there is interesting today, but over time it's going to get computed out by the incumbents or so I think in that, in that sense, we'll meet companies, but we'll have a view going to a meeting at a great team, but we can't see this space as being a long-term defensible area, for example. But it doesn't mean we don't meet people. We just have a sort of thought process, which we're prepared to change because we're learning all the time. Mm. It reminds me of the anecdote of at least Bill Gurley's backwards-looking, how did we find Uber? Yeah. Right? They like did a whole bunch of work on marketplace businesses and network effects. Yeah. And... He had particular theses in relation to like ground transportation. And so when he met Uber, he was like primed and ready to get it before everyone else. Yeah. And so he did that work. Then something came into his crosshairs and he was just like, bang, like this is my wheelhouse. I'll nail this. And like, I think we can agree at least on an enterprise value basis, like nailed it. (laughs) Do you guys think about it in the same way? You like do that work so you're prepped if you meet someone kind of in that space, but you're also kind of opportunistic as meet founders that you're just like damn that's a great idea yeah well we'll have a we'll have a view for sure so i do sometimes think some of these theses driven sometimes it's sometimes it's great content but i think it might be reverse, reverse engineering bit of serendipity <laughs> like how true is it really yeah i mean i, I know bill like he's an amazing investor so but i just uh, i think from our perspective we go into a sector we might we might be for example looking at a data in infrastructure layer in gen ai and this here's how we think it's going to play out hmm. But when we find one in that space, we go, okay, we've got to wait to think about that. And we probably have, hopefully, have more intelligent questions, which make them feel like we're partners. And sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they persuade us, like, you're wrong. There's another area, another way to look at this thing. But at least we come in with a, with a view. It also makes me think about how you track the patents that Apple puts in and like why you do that around, well, if I'm looking at companies that might be doing something in this space in the next 10 years, like how is that going to play out? I think there is something there about like you have to do the research in industries that you want to play in. Otherwise, like how are you going to make investment decisions? 100%. Like I think a very sage friend of mine gave me this framework to think about being a great investor, which I really loved, which is like you have to see the deal, then you have to win the deal. And then you have to learn from the deal because this is such a long-term investing is such a long-term activity. The extent to which you have better information at the table, you're going to make better decisions in the long term. And so, I mean, I think about this strategy as a, like, you just make sure that you have better information on particular verticals or particular horizontal opportunities or like moments so that if you come in to contact with an opportunity that intersects with the area you focus on, you're more able to see it, win it, like get it. And learn from it. Yeah. 
Yeah, like there's a middle one in there you miss. Like you have to understand the deal because you could see it and not understand it. And then why would you even win it? Because right. and like that's the piece where like the research means that you understand it. Also, learning how to manage your biases. Like you're not going to get rid of knowing what they are when they merge and whether you understand things or you misunderstand things. Just being really honest with yourself about like what are you likely to get wrong or right here. I think that's where a team can help you because often they'll see things you can't and vice versa. And hopefully you three of you really got a nice transparent and open conversation. You can get the wisdom of the crowds rather than one person's bias. 100%. That's such an interesting comment there. Yeah. Like I wonder for, I mean, maybe this is self-serving, but I also think for the, the folks that listen to our podcast, like a lot of them are angel investors. They don't have teams and they're not planning yeah. on building teams around them. Have you How noticed, do you manage your bias? Right. Like have you any any tips or tricks on how you manage your bias as an individual? Yeah, so I, well, I could tell you my bias. Oh, okay. I, I used to probably, I used to probably do too much work on early stage and try and over-index the analysis. That sounds a strange thing to say, but what I, what, I, what, I, what I mean by that, and I see it happen now all the time, is you're looking at a seed deal, 30-page IT paper, doesn't make the thought process any better. I think that I used to mistake, and people can mistake, amount of work for quality of the thinking. And, and it's, it's hard. The second thing, you know, there's some areas which I don't understand. I didn't, I missed, I missed Afterpay. Mm. I just couldn't conceive of why you wouldn't use a credit card. It just wasn't my generation. I, I, I joke now that if you had to invest in a product where you had to swipe, I'm not, I don't swipe, I didn't grow up swiping, okay? <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I'm being a bit silly, but there are things you go, I just know, I won't be the person who gets it, right? Mm. And the last one, which is a problem for, when you're doing it for a while is you've almost certainly seen that thing before and it hasn't worked. Mm. So your tendency could be, I've seen that before in, in certain years, it didn't work for it in certain reasons, but everything works at some point in time. So it might not work before, but why would it work now? Yeah. It reminds me, I don't know who said it, but they said like, in my experience, almost anything is possible technologically. It's just whether or not you can make the other factors work. Mm. Yeah. It's a humbling experience to see like, see a company and be like, oh, it's not going to work for these reasons or like it hasn't worked in the past and therefore it's not going to work again in the future. Yeah. And then it like really works in the future. <laughs> right? The like anecdote there is it's really easy in hindsight to be like Google was great investment, but at the time it was the like ninth to market in a very crowded search environment. Totally. And all of the investors that looked at it were like, why would Larry and Sergey win when everyone else has failed? Yeah. And like by the time it became obvious on the numbers, right, it was too late. Yeah. I do wonder how you think about intuition and investing in that perspective. Like something that actually my executive coach and I were talking about recently was the role of intuition and decision-making. And his kind of framing was if you could, especially for early stage, like pre-seed and seed, if you could know 100% it was going to work on the numbers, VC wouldn't exist in the way that it does, right? There's like an enormous amount of intuition that comes into decision-making. I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think it's important. I agree with your distinction between the difference between late stage and early stage. I think they're very different areas. You're right. If it was easy as, as knowing the numbers and knowing things, we wouldn't have a job. So there's always going to be a bit of a gray area. And so a bit of intuition in there. And you have to acknowledge the role of luck, right? So you're just trying to like force lady luck just to bend a little bit your way. <laughs> Examples of areas, and again, I'm going to say things here. My team will just check their head because that's very easy. <laughs> Ham analysis, right? I find ham analysis to be some of the most irritating, reductive thinking in investing. Interesting. The reason is that I feel like 
And I used to do it all the time. And at his business school, I could do a spreadsheet which would make you the TAM look amazing, right? <laughs> but it was almost all entirely wrong. And it's because there are so many answers, garbage in, garbage out. There's so many answers. My spreadsheets looked amazing, but it, it ignored the fact that you just didn't understand in that. Also, for in order, normal future state. So you're dealing with something today, and things change in the future. You know, dynamics change in the future. So the market might be growing, but the dynamics might be changing. And good founders can often just they don't see markets constrained by spreadsheets; they just see opportunities. So, so I think there there's an opportunity to at least have a sense of how big the market is, but don't be constrained by the spreadsheet. Like you need to think, have a gut feel. This could go somewhere. This could build somewhere. You know, it was a great example. I do think there's a lot of intuition, but I think it's if it just becomes gut feel and you're just throwing darts to dartboard, that's not going to end either. So it's got to be sort of a thoughtful, thoughtful analysis with with a bit of intuition. So do you even look at a founder's like market size TAM slide or do you just like totally discount that? Do you think founders should not even bother doing them then? Well, again, I'm probably a bit out. I, I, I'm more interested in how a founder is thinking about it. If a founder puts a TAM down, I think that's the answer, then that makes me question that judgment. If a founder puts something down and says, here's an answer, but you know they understand the ambiguity and complexity of the future, then that's great because that's the world. That's, that's, that's the real world. So... Yeah. More about how they phrase it. I love it when founders say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's rare. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Actually, I mean, I think it is one of those divisive topics, right? Like there's people on one side of the fence that are like, TAM analysis really matters. And then other side of the fence that it like really doesn't matter. And it's really both are right, you know? And I think that nuance is, it's about the way the founder is engaging with that information. My only challenge is like, Assume there's a world where TAM analysis is right. Okay, fine. Then you come back to where's the alpha? Because you can run the same numbers as everyone else. What's the insight, right? So well, if TAM is going to be an important factor in your decision making and you think you, you've got to find what's your angle that the next analyst is just as smart as you has on their same spreadsheet. Yeah, because we're all getting the same numbers at the end of the day from the founder. It's like, do you believe them or do I believe them or does right. nobody believe them? Yeah, yeah. So you've been doing this a long time, and I think that kind of shows, uh, you know, just the way that you you talk about some of these things. But I think it'd be really interesting to get a sense of like what it was like growing a VC fund from scratch during a time where there really wasn't many or any when you first started. Can you walk us through that journey a little bit? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you've both done this as well, so you know, you'll have your own your own journeys to share. Like, like, like to hear. I mean, I think I started Airtree ten years ago. And I've had almost 10 years experience in a fund before that. So I wasn't coming in fresh. But I think the first thing I'd say is like, it's, it's like starting a business. I've started, I've had started other software businesses. It's the same thing. It's like, it's really, really hard. You know, the odds are stacked against you. Lots of reasons to fail. Plenty of doubters out there. So you really have to have a sense of conviction and belief in a world where everyone's saying, don't do it. <laughs> back then, now it's more obvious, but back then it wasn't obvious. <laughs> And I guess that forced us to thinking about really, really crisp on what our thesis was. Why do we think it was a right for VC to thrive in Australia? And if so, what was the right model in VC? And for us, it was a multi-stage, regionally focused VC that had full service offering. Yeah, and, and it's not rocket science. It's a model you've seen working in other markets pretty well. Yeah, you got to find product market fit, right? You got to find a, a vision of land. You got to raise money from people who really have no reason to believe in you, you've got to convince a team to join you when you don't have anything. So um, you know, we were lucky to persuade investors to come on board. Two of the people people who joined 
in the very first week still with us right now. Wow. Cool. So that's it's like a seed fund. It's like a seed investment, pre-seed yeah, business. 100%. I actually, I remember when I was raising the pre-seed round and the seed round for my last venture back business. And because pre-seed and seed is over-dominated with emerging funds, we spoke to a bunch of emerging fund managers at the time. And I remember them being like, we raise capital too. Therefore, life is like you. And <laughs> I remember being like, it's not the same. It's so not the same. Like, this is so different. And then now I'm in it. I'm like, it's it actually surprisingly <laughs> similar, right? There's like lots of similarities, but I try not to talk about that with founders because I remember how deeply I was just like, you don't get it as a founder when I was talking to, to fund managers, but actually like I didn't get it at the time. And there's so many parallels that you're building a business here yeah. that has all of the features of building a kind of early stage unproven business yeah. and even some like other weird elements to it, right? Like it's almost like an enterprise sales motion in that you lock in a certain revenue and it's like yours for 10 years and then you like lockstep up revenue jumps yeah. but you get busier up behind them you know so you've got like set revenue but then you get busier and busier up to a point <laughs> we haven't got to that stage yet but like actually the growing of the business behind your like interesting revenue structure i think mm -hmm. is something i'm definitely kind of learning about i also there's a lot of parallels there there's a lot of parallels yeah, yeah i i read learned recently that the graduation rate from fund one to fund two in the last couple of years has been about 30%. So actually the death rate for like fund one to fund two fund managers is higher than like pre-seed and seed stage companies, at least. Yeah. yeah what's the death rate between seed and series A? I think it's about 50% in the US. I don't know. Have you seen any more recent data? I know some people have said recently it's closer to like 25 to 50 graduation rate from seed to series A. In the US, yeah. Do you know what it is in Australia? Moment. Uh, I'd say the same. Same. Oh, sorry. It has what it should be. It should be twenty fifty percent. It has been much higher than that. Yeah. But I think we're gonna to find failure rates have just been extended, which we're finding now. Yeah. But I think the the better sort of point I agree. I think you're making, which I agree with, is is VC failure rates are about the same as startups, and they fail for the same reason. It's not product market fit, the economics didn't work, or the team flew apart. They're the same sort of things that break in VC breaker startup can't raise the next round yeah <laughs> right yeah you can't raise the next, next, next fund next. round fund yeah. round fund round <laughs> um applications for the tech stars tech central sydney accelerator class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of may i'm kirsten hunter the managing director of tech stars sydney and i'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this accelerator cohort the 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. I'm wondering from your, I mean, you've obviously done this progression twice now, right? Like you ran a venture fund prior to Airtree and then now you've done it again. You kind of scaled two funds. What is it like to take those steps from like fund one, those early believers. I love the fact that you're like still so close to some of your early LPs that they're hanging out at your house right now. Um, like what did you learn in those steps up from fund one LPs to fund two, fund two LPs to fund three? Yeah. Well, that I mean, that's that's been a fascinating journey. I think uh, well, yeah, our first fund was a $60 million fund. We actually raised close to 80, about 80, but we felt that was too much money, scaled it back to 60, which is tiny by today's standards, but at the time, 
it was a big number, right? It was a really big number. Um, and we got there because we had, uh, well, we had a track record, which helped. We, we generated DPR. We'd had a pretty good network of people we worked with before. But the main thing was they were looking for like some sort of proof points of track record and they want alignment. And this is where the curly, this concept of GP can be, I know it's, it's a sensitive issue because it's, it can be icky, particularly for early managers. Um, so I, I don't want to brush over that. It's, a, it's an issue we need to resolve as a sector. We want to find managers coming in for sure. But I guess from, from our perspective, it was a very good way of saying we've done this before and we made money out of it and we're prepared to put it back in. And secondly, the alignment point was really important for me personally. Like, you know, it was really important that I was able, able to look my LPs in the eyes and say, if this doesn't work, I'm going to hurt way more than you are. It's no free option here. And so that, that made for some tough conversation with my wife, you know, <laughs> when mortgage my house, try and have a crack at this thing with VC, which, by the way, has never worked in Australia. Your point earlier, it hadn't worked before. <laughs> Thankfully, she believed and trusted in me. But I think they were... They were the big, big statements and big signals that we had to show that we were confident and aligned and we couldn't afford for this not to work. That was how we raised the first farm. We sort of family officer through just alignment and our own kind of like momentum. And these, some of these are friends that aren't mine and friends I'd worked with before, friends that are family officers that I'd grown up with. So, and then the transition for the second farm was interesting because that's when prior to 2000, our second farm was 16. And up to that point, VC was really on the nose for institutional investors. Uh, in, in fact, there were superannuation funds. I remember being one CEO, CIO, who said he was only two asset classes he was forbidden to taking to take, take into IC. One is Japanese jump bonds, and the other one is Australian venture capital. So, <laughs> because it just hadn't worked before. That's great. Sixteen, it changed, and they, they they started knocking at our door, and and it was a totally different experience. Yeah, they. Were, $100 million plus funds, they want to write big checks. They didn't really understand venture family. They answered PE. They thought it was kind of similar to PE. Uh, the DD process was just next level. You know, frankly, our operation DD was really, really hard because we weren't really there, to be honest. So we had a lot of leveling up, a lot of learning to do on operations, risk, technology. Uh, we, had it, we had the track record. We were making money, but the other parts of the business just weren't right there. So that was a big learning curve for us in that second part. And there's just maybe I'll jump in there because uh, we had have had some feedback from our listeners that uh, we tend to use a little bit of jargon uh, in our conversations. So yeah. there's a couple terms there you used um, that I'm going to define really quickly. But there was one that I that you said that I'm I'm going to ask you about. So one of the things you you just said was DD. That stands for due diligence, which is just the yeah. investigation that VCs or investors tend to do on on startups before they invest. You also mentioned P, which just stands for private equity. That's kind of the the bigger end of town that tends to come down and, and invest in uh, funds even when they don't understand it, like you mentioned. And another one that you mentioned was GP commit, which essentially is just uh, the amount of money that you have to, as fund managers, uh, commit to the fund itself. Um, it signals to us as you know LPs that you're committed to the fund and that it's your money on the line as well. And then there was another term that you used, and I, I might have heard it wrong, but you said we generated DPR or DVR um, at the start. What was that? Yeah, that's um, DPI is, t is basically the capital returned. TVPI, total value to paid in, and DPI, which is distributed paid in capital. And as fund managers, the only way, the only thing that our investors care about is DPI ultimately. They give us a dollar on day one and they hope to get two or three dollars back in real cash at some point. And so it's liquidity. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. 
I learned something today. I, I love that. I was as you were answering that question, I was watching Cheryl like take notes of the list of defined terms. It reminded me so much of being like a baby lawyer and then a baby investor, where you just be like, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, what does that like mean? Writing down words, then going to Investopedia and being like, what in God's hell? <laughs> what is, is a DPI? <laughs> but that quickly fast, I used too much jargon, it's blasted through that thing. <laughs> It's okay. I knew three out of four, so I'm calling yeah, that a win. Yeah, yeah. That's a 75%. I'll, yeah. I'll down that. I would I would say like on the GP commit point and on the like track record and DPI point, I think it is such a area that I think we need to solve as an ecosystem yeah. if we want to change the demographics of the people deploying capital. Because just for the kind of context here, the industry norm for GP commits, so the amount that fund managers are asked to put into their fund is somewhere between kind of 1% and 2%. So if you're raising a big fund and you aren't independently wealthy, you have those conversations. If you're lucky enough to kind of have a mortgage with equity in it, like you're having conversations with your loved ones, like, yeah. hi, I would like to bet the house. I can pull this off. <laughs> yeah. But if you're not in that situation, kind of not yet at that position, one version that I've seen in the US here is cashless commit, which I actually believe I've done it in my fund for a portion of our commitment and we use a company called uh, Boutique as our back office and in our early conversations with Tim at Boutique I was like I would like to do cashless commit for like this portion of our investment and he was like go on what is cashless commit yeah. and so it's like a new thing for the Australian ecosystem but I do think that that's a really exciting opportunity which for context here is essentially you forego management fees and then you take the kind of equivalent of that. So you are still aligned to it. You're not taking revenue to kind of run the business. That's, I think, a really exciting option. And on the DPI piece as well, like you have to be fairly far along in your career just because of the nature of the timelines of venture. Yeah. Show DPI? To show DPI, right? right? Like you have to hold a whole fund or like the majority of a fund to start to like return that, return that back. Do you have any theories on like how we break out of that cycle or does, is it just a structural requirement? that means that you have to be further along in your career to be able to be a fund manager? Um, I, I don't have a magic bullet, but I think it, I agree with you. It's, it's You need to spend time with this. So I think it's also breaking it down as component parts. What are you trying to achieve? The first piece is alignment and foregoing management fees is one way to do that. Like when we do it, when we back founders, we ask them to do the same thing, right? We say, we want you to earn next to no salary and we want you to invest your shares before you. So we, we, we're doing, we're asking our founders the same thing. We should do they set themselves for other people. That feels like a that feels like it's solvable through cashless commit. The actual cash in DPIs, I think that's a slightly separate point. And I think it really it just comes down to what what you're pitching, right? If you're pitching first time manager, then you won't have you can't pitch track record. So that's that you're gonna have it's a different thing you're pitching, right? But if you're pitching a track record, which we were, you can't pitch track record and then not put money. So I think it's a, it's a, it depends what your product and then it comes down to okay, well Where's a product market fit or a fund market fit for a early stage fund without a track record because they've got an interesting thesis in a market or a different angle on the view? That's, that's, that's fine. It's like a preceding investment in some ways. It's riskier, mm-hmm. but it might be better than backing it you know, invest as an LP than backing yourself into a established fund that's doing the same thing eight funds in. And there's some really interesting data on performance of fund one like fund ones and fund twos to a lesser extent of emerging managers actually statistically outperform later funds, but they're generally smaller. So I think like it kind of aligns to that, that comp you make there, like pre-seed investment versus a seed stage investment versus like you get compensated. Ideally you get compensated for the risk you take 
and you see a better kind of return profile on those plans. Yeah. Obviously, controlling for like market dynamics and those kind of things. Yeah. Like I think it's going to be pretty tough to return at an excellent fund one if you launched in August of 2020 and did for two years of deploying 21 and 22. Like that's a tough, a tough macro to be returning alpha in. Yeah. Hundred percent, and that's and that's where timing is everything, right? It's, again, it's the same for our companies. If you raise a seed round in twenty one or a round twenty one, chances are probably not worth the value you were there. So you're scrambling to try and build up, build your value back up to whatever you promised back in twenty one. What's the state of finance? Hundred percent, yeah. Actually, that raises a question for me. One of my takeaways from that period, let's call it like middle of twenty twenty through to even to twenty three. One of my takeaways is the importance of like clear communication, of the incentive structure in which you're operating. You know, a terminology I've been using for our fund is like, we are a two-sided marketplace. We have customers on either side yeah. and being very clear with the founders that we work for that like we have other sides on the other side to our marketplace that we have to serve. Yeah. And I found that to be a kind of a useful way to recognize the reality that like the customers on the LP side of our marketplace inform the decisions we can make and what we can invest in and how we operate on the founder side of our marketplace. Yeah. I'm wondering from your perspective, what have you, over your time of investing, how do you factor in the incentive structure that is having LPs whose capital you're investing into the way you think about investment decisions? How do you square those two and communicate to it? Yeah. Um, I think there's a few things there. So the incentives and then communications. I think on the incentives, I think it's, I mean, the reason they call it limited partners is they should have limited liability. The reason they have limited liability is they shouldn't get involved in decisions. And, and, and good investors understand that. So I think it's very dangerous that you start morphing your investment plan to suit your LPs. I mean, you, you promise them an investment thesis and investment plan when you took their money at the start of the fund, but then then they would trust you with that money to, to deliver on that, on that plan. So I think we just haven't found LPs who want to get involved because they know the reason they gave us the money, they trust that we're doing a good job. They know they've got an opinion that's probably not as well as informed as ours are. If they get it wrong, it's going to come back on them. So it just doesn't come. It just doesn't come in into play for us. That's that said. There's probably a couple of things that you do feel from LPs. One is um, DPI distribution paid in. Mm. Yeah, there's a sense of how, as you know, venture the venture community has been working for an incredible boom for the last ten years. But some of the earlier funds have not figured out how to return capital investors yet DPI. And that really matters because it's a proof point that the valuation, the holding valuations are actually what they say. It's also part of your promise to LPs to have given you a dollar 10 years ago. They they deserve to get their money back at some point. So I think just understanding how they think think about DPI and, and, and the need to give back DPI is something we're mindful of. We don't get pressure from it. We talk a lot about here's how we're thinking about it. We, communicate how we think about exit plans, liquidity plans in our portfolio. The second thing that it's not really how the doesn't affect investments, but it affects fund size is this it's gonna sound like a total privileged problem to have is large investors want to write big checks. And so the temptation is, especially in the last five years, is like can you take a hundred million dollar line or and you can get your your funds can get bigger than you you need to be. And I think I think we've always taken the view that we want to size our funds bottom up and top down. We want to do some careful work about what's the right size of the fund given the market we're seeing, the space we're going to play in, the team's capacity. And we don't want to go too much more than that. But it's fair to say with you know large institutional investors, you, you can get 
beguiled into taking more than you should. And that, that could be a real problem. I, I appreciate that's a nice, could be seen as a nice problem to have. <laughs> yeah, for some. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that that tracks also to companies, right? Like yeah. Kim Tio just blows me away. I am persistently amazed by her. One of the moments I have been particularly amazed by her is in the heady environment yeah. of 2021, or maybe, yeah, 2021, when Tiger came knocking on that door. They offered them, Tiger offered them a significantly larger valuation and a much bigger check size than they took. Yeah. And Kim and the team, in their infinite wisdom, were like, no, we're going to have significantly less. And I believe at the time, the fund manager who led it was like, what? Even on like, valuation? Like on they valuation. took less money and a yes. less valuation. Yes. Yeah. How did they, I would love to talk to them, uh, maybe this is we get her on the show. Yeah, like, yeah. I would love to understand, like, at what quantum did they go, cool, you're offering us 100, we'll take 75 of that? Or, like, we'll take eight, like, where do you find, well, I how's think, the right number? Right, but I think, like, Craig is an example of this, but he's doing it at a different topic, right? Yeah. It's like, you're offering me 100 million, but actually I have the discipline to know my investing plan and I know 100 million breaks my model. Yeah. And I'm, like, not going to give in to the greed of like excellent that's 2x the management fee i could take on that or yeah. like kind of move away from that from that discipline so maybe i mean i would love to have kim on the show kim <laughs> if you are gracing us with your ears like please come on the show but craig i'd be interested in your thoughts like what is the mental discipline for you to be like thank you no well i think it is just having confidence that in your investment plan this is this is how many checks we've got to write this is the size of the checks we think we're going to need to get the stake we need so we've got, a, we've got a plan we believe in in our case we've done it four times now like we know we've got a fairly good idea about what this plays out so if you take more money you, are, you have to you have to change things so like that's just dangerous any, any model is working well particularly in this market but the second thing is like why why do you take this money what what, what are the things that make you take more money do you think well it's usually like Hey, it's pretty flattering, right? <laughs> well, we flattered. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was just acknowledging that. It's real. Like, hey, it's, hey, bigger check. You, maybe the, the front page of the AFI looks better. You know, you maybe make more management fees or in Kim's case, you have a longer runway. But long term, is it really that good for you? And I think, you know, as we found out at the company level and the fund level, it's, it can be really bad for you if you take too much money. And I think we're certainly seeing that at the company level. You know, Kim's an exception to that rule. And I think you may see at the fund level if funds who took too much money and they just have to stretch their investment thesis, write bigger checks, go harder on things just to put money to work. And that can, that can be very dangerous. Yeah. Speaking of the AFR, we I mean, there was an article recently around you know larger checks attracting founders and, and whether that's a sustainable model. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are the thoughts there and, and how that impacts things? Yeah, I think I know the piece you're referring to. I don't know. I don't, I my view is that we should all care about the ecosystem. We want to see more founders back. We need to see more startups get capitalized, whether it's us, any other fund doing that. It's a good thing. If someone wants to pay more money for it to get in early, I think that's, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing for the ecosystem, I think. Uh, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that story hit the market. Mm -hmm. I think it misunderstood how venture works. If you can get into the best companies and pay a little bit more early on, which we do the same thing, and you find the next a hero where you find it's go on that's a great strategy yeah sage voice sage okay. voice. yeah you're talking earlier like craig's the sage voice in the like drama of the tech scene sometimes 100 percent, just like anchor on on the realities of it right every day if you gave me the opportunity to buy like as you said go one can buy any of these at a 
you know, 20 mil valuation. Yeah, you, I do it all you day. do it. <laughs> and, uh, and then when you've done this, I sound like the wise old man, but if you've done it enough, you will have seen that work well. Yeah. Those examples, like those sort of numbers, like that's a really, that works out really well for you, right? But you also said when you miss things because you didn't pay enough or you didn't write enough. Like that's just, just a silliest reason to miss. So we never want to miss a deal because of valuation or, or check sign. But in the early stage, the later stage is a whole other, it's really, you've got to do some serious analysis. Yeah. Not thinking. And so, yeah, that's a much more dis- dis- different discipline, but early stage, getting into it and paying a high price is a entirely sensible strategy, I know. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So do you compete on valuation then if you're like the founder wants a higher valuation because they're getting it from someone else? If that's not something you want to miss out on a deal from, do you actually compete on that? Well, I think we've said we have to pay market. We won't notionally bid the price up because of the previous conversation. We actually think sometimes it can damage the, the company. If, if, you, if the company takes our money or somebody else's money at the too high valuation, the check suicides, and, you, and it's going to take them longer to do what they need to do in that Series A, they're going to have a problem in, in 18 months' time. So you're looking for the Kims of the world. You go, actually, it doesn't always work, but the reason why it's cases where we're able to get into companies that are lower valuation and with less check because they're thinking long-term, but they're not thinking about optimizing this round. The psychology of valuation is so interesting. Like I'll say for my own investing activity, like I notice that it influences like my gut-level reaction and I have to counteract that gut level reaction yeah you know someone like an amazing founder building something really cool comes to me with like an unreasonably low valuation i find myself being like why like (laughs) you know what does that say to me about the information your flows you're in like what does that say to me about the like quality of the founder and i have to check that and be like yeah there are so many reasons why that might be the case and similar on the other end i don't i think it's very important not to lose sight of the like we are humans we're not computers like there's like so much psychology around valuation that also matters yeah and i think having discipline around it is really valuable yeah i do wonder you know you have watched such an amazing progression of things in the australian ecosystem right like i think your first fund was 2002 from memory you've watched this incredible journey is that right or are you were you in market prior to that oh five was the first one yeah oh five yeah oh, five. okay so like i mean you are an og of the ecosystem old guy slash original G of the of the ecosystem. Like you've watched some amazing things happen in this world. I I wonder if you can kind of be the voice of history for us and share what do you think of the trend lines you're watching into the next stage of the Australian ecosystem? Yeah, I think I think that time series gives you perspective of just how far we've come and then how far we have to go. If you how far we've come, you know, we used to see we used to see 500 investments a year, even just 20 years ago, and make two or three. But, you know, we see 3,000 now and make you know, 15, 20, you know. Most of the companies we saw were either der- pretty derivative ideas, there were caves some global ones, but it really wasn't, it wasn't the ambition, anywhere near the efficiency now, but you didn't have these showcase for companies like Canberra or Go On, showing that's what a, global, it's a multi-billion dollar global company looks like. Um, so ambitions increase. We've gone from no fund, so VCs there, to no VCs, to VCs starting again in the seconds in this next epoch, starting in around 14, to now there's hundreds of VC funds. You, you know, both your examples, you have different diversity of t- capital coming in from different sizes of funds and types of capital. It's a totally overused word, but the ecosystem is working. Like you can just see it's sort of knitting together, that you, you, you know, talents coming in from universities or jumping out from the 
post of Charlotte startups, yeah, angel investors are becoming more sophisticated. Hopefully, you know, shows like yours help that. You know, seed funds, multi-stage funds, and sure, we compete sometimes, but I think one of the hallmarks of Australia, which we should not take for granted, is it is actually genuinely collaborative. I think genuinely, sure, we're going to compete when we need to, and, that, and that's that's the right thing to do for our founders. But in general, we want everyone wants each other to succeed because we're trying to lift this whole thing up. Uh, I, I think we shouldn't take that for granted. You don't find that in Israel or Canada or, or UK. It's much more cutthroat. You certainly not in the US. So certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> I just learned that there's no um, VC conference in any other country. Like we're the only country that like gets all the VCs together in one room every year. Right. Yeah. I think that might be more about scale than it is about collaboration. Like you can fit all of the VCs in a, <laughs> in a room. I don't think you can do that in the US. Or it's like Madison Square Garden, you know, like it's been. Yeah. I do. Um, we're coming to you. The reason we're sitting together today, which is unusual, is we are very rarely in the same part of the world, but we're currently in Perth for West Tech Fest. Yeah. And I think uh, my takeaway is just like how collaborative you can be when it is a small knit community. I think that you know, as we continue to see this growth trajectory, there's going to be a point at which Australia, like we can't all fit in the same room <laughs> physically or like theoretically. And so thinking about how we hold on to that collaborative roots, mm. even while we scale into an environment where we kind of do have to bifurcate or the cells kind of have to split, how do we make sure we still collaborate? I think it's really important. I do think that the Australian culture kind of lends itself to that. that. Yeah, it absolutely sure. does. Yeah. I think we're coming up to our last question, Maxine. Yeah. I am really excited to ask you this, Greg. Um, so what is the biggest big kahunas moment you've ever experienced? A moment where you felt really brave? I, I do a lot of adventurous things. I do a lot of, in my previous, well, probably still do a lot of crazy stuff. I love risk. I love understanding how far you take risk. I have no interest of dying. I really don't want to die, but I'm happy to risk almost everything else. So I won't bore you with that. I think maybe... Maybe you go back to bravery. So I think going back to maybe when I was at university, I was in my first year at university studying engineering and I had a stroke and I was uh, paralyzed down one side of my body and I couldn't speak and I was in hospital for a pretty frightening period. And it was just before my final year, first year exams, about this time of year actually. And I obviously did see exams. I was in hospital for a long time. We didn't know whether I'd walk or speak and so I had to learn all those things again and then I just and uh, yeah, I was pretty uncertain of the future I, and I just decided well I'm going to go back and do these exams all these exams in February I had to have a special room and I couldn't really think properly but I just did the exams probably not very well but I got through the exams and then then went straight back into the competitive sport as fast as I could and I, I couldn't really run properly but it all came back pretty fast and within a yeah within six months I was playing yeah, pretty competitive sport again, and was I passed my first year's exams, uh, which is a, a a nice win. So I think that was probably a moment where I could have gone the other way. I could have sat back and taken a year off. I could have, yeah, just wallowed a little bit, but I didn't. I sort of just got stuck in and did it. That's amazing! Wow, I that mean, is very brave. Like that you, is super you kind of made it seem like you weren't going to come up with anything there. Yeah, and yeah. then mic drop. <laughs> I actually. Um, my partner had a stroke a year and a bit ago. And so I watched firsthand what that's like to rebuild. And I, don't, I just really want to underline the bravery element there because it is, at least from what I've watched, is like effing terrifying for your brain and body not to work. Yeah. 
when you're used to being what I'm assuming is a like very capable outdoorsy like, engaged yeah. person and like the choice to be like nope I'm not letting this stop me I am gonna you know be embarrassed be kind of wobbly say weird things yeah you know dripping slightly all of those things as your body is recovering yep I think that's incredible and speaks volumes of the bravery that you brought to that wow 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 that's well, incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for sharing everything today. Just, I think we've learned so much. Amazing conversation. Thank you for bringing us into your home. Yeah, this has been the best. Thank you so much, Greg. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Very much. Thank you.